is the one thing that we don't got in New York City. So it's the wolf men's. We got all kinds of men's. We got good men's, bad men's, Italian men's. We got police men's. We got all kinds of men's, but we ain't got hey, no wolf men. Hey, Italian men, we, we make, we make, you trying to make a pizza? I will always take a pizza. A pizza. Ladies and gentlemen, live from coast to coast, we proudly present For Your Infilmation with Zach and John. Foolish mortals, to for your infilmation, we are your ghostly hosts, Zach and John, and John, who has a little girl voice for some reason. Oh, I'm just it- a pretty little girl out here trick or treating. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what's gonna happen to me on such a scary night as Halloween. Ooh. Bad, bad touch. Halloween's the one night a year where people mysteriously go missing. Did you know? Like, it's actually legitimately. People go missing the most on Halloween. So does this have anything to do with the tremendous amount of alcohol and drugs that's consumed on Halloween? I would have to assume so. I need to look at that statistic because I don't know if it's children that go missing or just people in general, like regardless of age, gender, whatever. Right. That's an important factor because, you know, if you're like, uh, I don't know, a lumberjack, maybe you have a less chance going missing on Halloween, a smaller chance. Yeah, because a lumberjack is a hardworking man. He goes to work at four in the morning. He doesn't get home until six. Dinner's on the table. Play with that blue ox. And then it's time for bed because you got to be back up at four. Them trees are not going to cut down themselves. I can't help but think that blue ox is a euphemism. And now I'm sad. (laughs) Blue ox can refer to babe the blue ox. Or it could also, I guess, maybe be a heroin reference. I don't know. I was thinking more of a dick reference, but, you know, that's fine. You're going to play with the blue ox. You know, you Paul Bunyan that shit. <laughs> I'm going to play with my blue ox with my giant Paul Bunyan hands. Ooh, they're all calloused and they got fr- the corns on them for some reason. Like he works with his hands so much that he gets like foot conditions on his hands. <laughs> and you know what? That guy probably is a cam guy. I, I could see that. I-, I could I could see him getting a lot of coin from that. We have not even started the episode yet. We have not started the episode, and I'm already on my bullshit. And I've What's already up? made a dick joke. And we've already made a dick joke. But that's okay. That's what we do here. Anyway, welcome, fuckers. And this week, we're going to be doing The Wolfman. Ooh, oh! The Wolfman. Wolfman from 1941. In this uh, series that we're doing on the classic Universal Monsters, we are going to skip ahead 10 years from Dracula and Frankenstein and go all the way up to the Wolfman, which completes the the holy trinity of uh, characters that are in this shared universe. Agreed. Um, Does the werewolf have his own breakfast cereal? Like there's Count Chocula and there's Frankenberry. Is there a werewolf version or is that just the cookie crisp thing with the wolf? No, that's the honeycomb guy. Oh, oh, oh. No, not that guy. That guy is like a... What is that thing? I don't know. I only... You know what I thought when I was a kid, though? I always thought it was just Donnie from the Wild Thornberries. Uh, I see why you I thought the honeycomb guy was just that guy. So, like, he hit puberty and just started growing hair everywhere, but he didn't get any bigger? Or maybe it's, like, Sonic the Hedgehog's, like, cracked-out cousin. I don't know, dude. Or, you know know what... 
you know what it really is? What what could it possibly be? It's if Lucky the Leprechaun from Lucky Charms and whatever the fuck the Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs bird's name is, if they had an illegitimate child, it would be the honeycomb, dude. So it's like a like a human animal hybrid then? I dude, I don't know. You know I, I think you're not supposed to know. That's fitting though, considering the episode, because like the wolf man, you know, it's like a wolf and a man kind of like a wolf and a dog like a wolf dog but like wolf dogs are illegal so like wolf man like how many states is that illegal in you know what i'm saying um well probably a lot but i can't i don't know if there's any specific laws in the united states about werewolves well if any listener knows anything about that i'd love to know I was thinking more along the lines of if you breed a wolf and a dog, that's illegal in some states. And if you breed a wolf and a human, that's got to be illegal in pretty much all states, right? Um, That's 100% illegal. Okay, well, question answered. I, I probably shouldn't have even asked it, but I'm glad that well, we're informing the listener on legal matters. Well, okay, so my question about your question, though, is are you insinuating that somewhere someone is just, like, breeding different animals together and they just have, like, a human captive along with all the other animals and then try and breed it with other stuff? Well, see, that's the thing, though, Zach, is that this is a pervasive issue apparently and the term chimera exists for that reason like it's illegal as far as i understand to make a chimera which is a human animal hybrid and there are laws against it because people continually try to do this i i had no idea that was real i thought that was like a like a fucked up thing you read on reddit like latest shit at night like i did i did not think that was real yeah do you remember the whole controversy that went around a while back where i think it was either like a like a human and a pig or a human and a dog and there's that thing with floppy ears and a bunch of like i guess pups suckling on it and there was like a picture that went around yeah no i i never saw that and i don't care to okay well it was a hoax and that was a chimera oh okay because from what i understand and we have spent way too long on this but what from what i understand it doesn't work like they don't actually like like, you can't breed a human with other animals. Like, oh, it doesn't work like that. No, we've got different amounts of chromosomes. Like, there, there's no way that it would possibly work, in, like, in the natural world. <sighs> I don't know. Like, if you're doing that, like, you might want to stop. Especially because I, I just found out that's illegal. If it could happen, it would have happened already. That's the curse of being an artist, is that you can only be so creative because there's so many people, and so many people have tried so many things already. So many people... I'm I'm so done. <laughs> the fact that you just legitimized this bullshit that I just learned about makes me very upset. All right, well, let's move on from that. Uh, Zach, do you have any Halloween plans? Halloween plans? Um, if you mean putting on an endless marathon of Rob Zombie movies and not doing shit and getting drunk, that is uh, my only Halloween plan. Well, you got a good cocktail recipe to fall back on, or rather a recipe book. Ooh, yes. And if by recipe book you mean the For Your Information Facebook page? Yeah, that's what I meant. So tell me, John, what cocktail have you concocted this week? Ooh, okay. So I've got something special for you guys. This is what I wanted to do with the Frankenstein cocktail, but didn't really feel appropriate doing it for it. Because as you'll see through this episode, this is more of the monster movie of your dreams. This is not the monster movie that you thought Frankenstein was going to be, where it was really literary and it was sentimental and it was very thought-provoking. The Wolfman is a little more raw and a little more real. It exists kind of in the real world more so than the other ones do. And um, that makes a monster. 
Like that that's something that I can legitimately get down with, something that I can legitimately say is scary, and something that will fuck you up. So <laughs> this one's called the lycanthropic lemonade. So for those of you that are not familiar, uh, there are a lot of variations on a cocktail called Electric Lemonade, which is like a mix of like sweet and sour, sometimes coming from a mix, sometimes coming from a lemonade and vodka, sometimes with liqueur in the middle. So it really just kind of depends on the type. It's like a cocktail genre rather than a specific recipe. But we did one of those for you. It's something fun you can do at cocktail parties, something you could do maybe even for Halloween. If you're really ambitious and especially responsible, you could probably make a picture of this for your Halloween party Ooh, yeah an entire picture for me to drink by myself yeah so i was watching the movie and i thought man the werewolf doesn't waste any time when there's a werewolf involved you're not gonna last long and that's what i kind of thought of with this cocktail too this is supposed to recreate the scene of the wolfman where larry wakes up in his bed completely dazed not realizing what's happened and sees muddy footprints all over the windowsill he's like oh god what happened that's what this is going to do to you if you have one too many. So please drink responsibly, but here's how you make it. All right, so you're going to take an ounce of lemon juice, half ounce of lime juice, three ounces of lemonade, fresh is always best, three quarter ounces of triple sec, a half ounce of 151 proof rum, one and a half ounces of vodka, and a dash simple syrup. And you're going to mix that together in a mixing glass or in a cocktail shaker. It doesn't really matter what you mix it in as long as it's big enough with some ice. Uh, and then you're going to take that and you're going to strain it into a high glass i use something that's like semi-stemmed it's more like a like a hurricane glass uh maybe just like a general like tiki type glass something you can put something fancy in and uh put it in the glass with ice and then i topped it with raspberry liqueur so you get a real interesting Ooh. effect when you do something like that right you take the red raspberry liqueur and you pour it over the top of the like pale yellow lemonade and it's like blood like like i don't know exploding down into the drink and it settles on the bottom you mix it up real nice after it gets that separation and you got yourself a raspberry lemonade cocktail with a big kick Ooh, i feel like you could sell that idea to chili's Ooh, Chili's would never go for this. That's the thing about those chain restaurants, man. You never get a quality, punchy cocktail. You never get something that's got a lot of kick to it. Mm. Not that I've ever tried to get wasted in Applebee's. That's on my bucket list. I haven't done it yet. Oh, yeah, dude. If you haven't got kicked out of an Applebee's, what are you even doing with your life? Right? I mean, at the worst case, I figure you could just order beer, right? Because, I mean, they can't fuck with the beer. Right. Like, you, like if you're just drinking Natty Lights all night, you're going to be fine. Like, you're not going to get thrown out of Applebee's. Right. And I was thinking, like, for a while, they had the dollar Long Islands and the dollar uh, margaritas and stuff. And I thought, man, someone's got to get drunk on this. Turns out someone did an experiment. They drank about 20 of them and got, like, moderately intoxicated. Like, they did not get that drunk considering and really? uh, i think that article's still out there i want to say it was buzzfeed or some buzzfeed affiliated source huh maybe so, I'm wrong. like I don't know. so so like they water down the booze at applebee's well yeah they basically just make a big like vat of this pre-made cocktail and dump it into a glass when you order it like anytime you're doing one dollar long islands i mean Come on, a Long Island at home doesn't cost that much per drink to make, but you better believe that they're trying to maximize profits on those. They're a dollar. That was their big marketing scheme for months at a time. Yeah, you better believe you're not getting actually, I don't know, two and a half, three ounces of booze in one of those things. Not a chance. Not at an Applebee's. <laughs> this is a neighborhood restaurant. Right. And I mean, honestly, if I had a neighborhood bar, neighborhood would be Liz L. Hmm. I would love to live in your neighborhood. Mr. John's neighborhood, where All booze right. flows freely. Zach. What's up, John? important question for you that's cocktail related. 
what is your important question that is cocktail related? I guess it's, it's a two part question, really. So one, what does your home bar have? What does my home bar have? Ooh, you're going to be disappointed in me. Are you not living the lifestyle? I, I, you know, I've been kind of in between apartments lately. So like having a nice bar setup has not been on my agenda lately. But what I do have on hand at all times, I always have a bottle of Jameson. I have two different, three different kinds of beer, actually. Um, I always have a shit beer, like a Paps. I have an IPA and I have a sour because those are all, all my favorite things. Hmm. And shit beer is like for like a weekday. Like that's something where it's just like, <clears throat> but in like just a day that it's just God awful or it's just horrible and like you realize like this is real life this is forever that that's a paps blue ribbon kind of day to me but then on the weekends you know i'm making you know jameson and coke on the first one and then just jameson and then just more jameson and then i'll brown that off with like a nice beer Hmm. sometimes sometimes some gin like a gin and tonic gin and juice if i'm already drunk gin by itself Mm, gotta love the gin by itself hell yeah i mean it's basically just like seltzer water except it tastes like medicine interesting perspective (laughs) well i'd say that you have enough on hand to be living the like my own worst enemy lifestyle you are exactly correct yeah you're just living out the song by lit (laughs) just um you know woke up on my front lawn is that the right song it's the car that's on the front lawn oh well i mean i was just very drunk last night and i'm waking up the first thing i see is the lawn and then i realize it's the car Ah, i see so you're maybe on the porch looking out at the lawn i'm on the front porch looking in my man Mm. we're getting introspective on this uh on this version of lit's classic okay so follow-up question zach okay have you actually had any of the cocktails that we've made for this podcast up until right now? Up until right now, uh, I 100% made that uh, Yippie Kaye motherfucker the other day. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. What'd you think Sh- about that one? Well, I love blue motherfuckers, so I was like, well, I might as well make my podcast version. It has blood at the bottom. It has blood at the bottom. It's just grenadine. Sorry. But, um, yeah, I like that one. I definitely, the way you describe the cocktails, so I can always taste them. Hmm. Because you've made me a lot of cocktails in my life. So I kind of know how you make them. I see. And, um, but, you know, I don't have all the stuff to make the ones that you make all the time, now that you mention it. I hope that once you upgrade your bar in your new place, you will try all of the recipes. Maybe have like a, for your infilmation cocktail challenge. I will, and I will film that so that you guys can watch me be a giant baby when I drink. Oh, what was it? The Dracula one? Oh, yeah. The uh, the Transylvanian Corpse Survivor. Yeah, because I, I don't like licorice, so I, kn- I know, but I, I trust John. I trust the podcast, and I trust John, so I know it's probably at least decent. This puts a damper on all of the icy coldness I felt inside when you said you'd only drank one of my cocktails, so I am restored. So, but John, yeah, how would you suggest I go about creating a what you say home bar ah a home bar uh it's really kind of simple i've been building and rebuilding bars for a while now and i found that there's a few things that you really need uh just to be able to make most of the drinks that you're gonna see most of the drinks you're gonna want it really depends on your taste though and i I think that's the number one thing to consider is like if you have 
one or two drinks that you really just like, I would center your bar around that. So let's say you like uh, Moscow mules. Okay, well, ginger beer is going to have to be a part of your repertoire then because naturally that's a part of the Moscow mule. Um, you're also going to have to have vodka, lime, all, all the other stuff. But most importantly, the ginger beer is going to be the odd one out. Everything else is shared with a lot of drinks, but the ginger beer is you know more unique. So outside of that type of thing, I think there are a few things that everyone can have on their bar to make it a little bit more utilitarian, give them a well-rounded base where they can make cocktails. So I think the first thing as far as liquors are concerned would be vodka. Uh, vodka, you know, tasteless, flavorless, odorless. Well, I guess taste and flavor are kind of the same thing. It's everything less spirit. It's supposed to be clean and almost undetectable. It's not really undetectable. Vodka? Yeah. So you got to have some vodka. Don't spend too much money on it. Uh, you got to have yourself some tequila. I would say tequila is one of the liquors you're worth spending your money on because nice tequila and shitty tequila are worlds apart. So even if you go with silver tequila, which I'd recommend for a beginner, get something nice. Um, Patron is expensive, but it is nice. You can, there's other brands out there, but a silver tequila. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, a gin, London Dry. You're going to be able to make a lot of classic cocktails with gin. You can add it to other things and get an interesting flavor. Uh, London Dry is a good place to start. You know, your Tangerays, your uh, Seagram's, your Beefeater, that type of stuff. Um, Tangerays, my shit. I fucked with Tangeray, man. I know you love some Tangeray. So, oh, dude. Uh, rum is also important. If you're like me and you're really into rum cocktails, uh, having several different types of rum is a good thing. But for most people, they can get away with just having a single light rum. So uh, even just a Bacardi is going to be just fine. Just a Bacardi regular light rum. Uh, whiskey is, is important. The, is the captain not in you, John? It's not that the captain's not in me. It's just that, like, why? I, <laughs> I, I feel like I, I feel like captain is like always a few dollars more expensive than Bacardi, but I don't like it any better. So dude, why, dude? I, I I have to tell you, um, one of my former roommates, we had a bottle of Captain Morgan dark rum that we kept trying to put into drinks. We kept trying. And just no, nothing calls for dark rum. Just nothing. And you can't just put it in anything. Like, you're gonna taste it every single time. See, under normal circumstances with a dark rum or even like a blackstrap rum, that's a good thing. But like, if you can pick it out and be like, ah, nah, it's got X liquor in it maybe you should reconsider. Because again, it's a flavor thing. And just because it's a nice liquor doesn't mean that it's, you know, what you like. You know, just because it's nice to everybody else or it's expensive doesn't mean it's what you like. Right. Like, um, what what is everyone like? Like Johnny Walker. Like, I always appreciate it when a friend gives me a shot of Johnny Walker because I know how much they paid for it. Oh, yeah. Like I did that one time. Yeah. Like you did that one time. And every time, you know, I, I think you also bought one for our buddy Sean. And every time I went over to Sean's house, he would give me like a shot of it. And it, I don't know, man. Like it just, it tastes exactly like you think a whiskey would taste. But like, I, I don't know. Like, do you find complexity in Johnny Walker? Because I don't. Like, it just tastes like burning to me. Okay, so what you're describing to me is like it's the experience of someone that has not had a lot of scotch in their life okay so i think just like with other liquors we'll take bourbon for example if Ooh. you don't like bourbon everything's gonna taste like the worst bourbon you've ever had so scotch is exactly okay. the same way where like if you've only tried one or two like scotches it's going to taste like the worst one you've ever had until you break out of that box okay it's important to try different stuff and like take your time with it and shooting scotch is not really something i recommend anybody do just because of the nature of scotch like it is a really complex spirit 
and it's easy to drink. It's not like a mezcal, which is also really smoky and dark. You know, like a, that's a totally different thing. Way, way more powerful. But when you take something like scotch, you're like, okay, I know what I'm drinking and I can taste all the flavors and stuff. It's really enjoyable. But for someone who's really new, they're gonna be like, that tastes like cigarettes in whiskey. Right. Okay. So I'm not alone in that. Like, it's not that I don't like it or don't appreciate it. I love it when people have me try their expensive alcohol mm-hmm. just because it, it it is truly a friendship thing. It's like, here, enjoy this. I spent money on this or this was gifted to me by uh, my father or my friend, you know, just anything. Like, it, it's always nice when someone gives it to you, but... I'm just so much more of a whiskey person. Yeah, and you know, Scotch being kind of the redheaded stepchild of what most people consider whiskey, huh. um, I, I see how that's like not in your wheelhouse for someone who, like you, is into bourbon. So uh, going on with the list, I would say that a whiskey is the next thing you should have on your bar. This is probably on the least important end of the spectrum, uh, just because... There are a few cocktails that call for whiskey, but if you're not already into whiskey, then you're probably not going to find a lot of use for it. Correct. Yeah. Other than that, uh, outside of the, your, your core liquors, uh, triple sec is important. Uh, any orange liqueur, really. Uh, I think triple sec is a good starting point because it's cheaper and it's very useful. I don't really find an awful lot of use for stuff like Cointreau or Grand Marnier. Just like really expensive orange liqueur. Like if you're really into orange liqueur, then like that's cool. But at the same time, like I I don't see a point in spending, you know, $30, $40 on a bottle of liqueur. Like unless it's something really interesting or special. But I mean, for my purposes, I just use triple sec for most things. Or if I really need it to be like a brandy based thing, I'll just throw some cognac in there with the triple sec. Like, sorry. Yeah. Maybe that's trashy. I I, I don't know. I, I'm willing to own that. Um, so outside of triple sec, I think vermouth is important. Sweet and dry. It's not that expensive. It's easy to get. Uh, bitters. Start off with some regular aromatic bitters, maybe by Angostura or someone like that. Uh, good company that make a lot of good products. Um, and simple syrup. You can buy simple syrup or you can make it yourself. It's just equal parts water and sugar boiled together. Um, that one's not too hard. Get yourself a little squirt bottle that you put a sauce in and fill it up with simple syrup. Uh, same thing for your other ingredients. Like uh, squeeze some limes put it in a squirt bottle. Squeeze some lemons, put it in a squirt bottle. Like if you're going to be making cocktails, save yourself some time, get the good ingredients and make it count. So just squeeze yourself some fresh juice and put it in a bottle. Uh, Same thing with like orange juice. Like buy the Simply Orange, spend the extra dollar and get the stuff that's not from concentrate. You'll thank yourself later. Or if you're really ambitious, just juice the oranges yourself. I mean, you need a lot more oranges than you do limes, but I mean, all right. If that's speaking of the juice, I guess, but uh, you get what I mean. Yeah. And then you can start putting orange peels and like finishers in there. Yeah. You can cut a face out of an orange peel and put that on top of a cocktail glass that will definitely if you want someone to not come back to your house that would be the way to do it that that sends a message ah yes the devil's rejects cocktail what was that called the devil's work ah yes i do the devil's work um by the way three from hell very good yeah yeah uh don't believe the bullshit that people will tell you about three from hell if you just sit there and ignore any dumb plot elements it's great Uh, that sounds like most rob zombie movies you yeah correct (laughs) speaking of movies we've gotten really off base but i'm glad we covered our basic bar stuff let's dive into this wolfman thing the wolfman from 1941 made on a budget of 180 thousand dollars which it's just absolutely insane like that's pretty low even for like back then adjusted for inflation that's like half of what it costs to make dracula correct like they got really good at making these things and they would like reuse a lot of sets so it wouldn't it didn't cost 
cost them nearly as much to make these movies towards the end of this cycle. So this movie was produced by, as all of them are, Universal Pictures and directed by George Wagner, uh, who directed a couple of these other ones. But it was written by Kurt Sidomack. Siodmack. Siodmack? I think it's Kurt pronounced Kurt Siodmack, who also wrote I Walked with a Zombie and House of Frankenstein. Yeah, did a lot of work with Universal. Uh, it turns out he's a trained mathematician, but ended up as a writer instead. I that's a, that's a weird career jump. It kind of is. Like I've run into people who are like mathematicians and musicians, or like mathematicians and photographers, but not like I was in school to be a mathematician. I succeeded at doing that, and now I write monster movies. Yeah, that that's a very odd thing to do especially this one because this one is um not nearly as like literary or as scholarly as like a like a frankenstein right so very interesting um this movie also compared to dracula and frankenstein had a score yes were were you were you happy to hear the score throughout the film john I was very happy to hear that. It was more familiar to me because pretty much all of the movies that I've seen have had a full soundtrack to them. You know, whether it was original Mm -hmm. music or recycled music or even stock music. Like, I mean, it's something that's really normal to modern day viewers. So watching something like Dracula or Frankenstein, like I feel like that would be one of the main things that people complain about. It's just the fact that it seems boring or empty without music. But then you watch a movie like this and you get a full soundtrack to accompany it. And that changes the game a lot. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a classy soundtrack. Like it's all music made for this movie. It's all music that, you know, goes with the film. And it's not just like horror movies now where the soundtrack is just. You know, like it's just, you know, other than the other than the soundtrack for uh, for us by Jordan Peele which had a freaking great soundtrack. Like, I'll listen to that soundtrack by itself. It's it's phenomenal. I'll have to listen to it. Maybe, maybe I'll give you some feedback later on as to whether or not I agree with you. Dude, I, I feel like it changed the game because I'm so tired of... Doo, 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 doo. Like, it's, it's almost like most movies nowadays are just, like, ambient, like, computer noises with, like, some tribal drumming. Hmm. Like, to create tension. And, like, I, I hate it. And you know who it makes me hate the most is Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan movies really, really started that trend, and I kind of hate him for it. Huh. I don't know enough about movies to be that mad about it. Yeah, well, I, I think also Hans Zimmer does all of his um, soundtracks, but I could be wrong. But I, I know he definitely did the Inception soundtrack, and fuck that soundtrack. Noted. Noted. <laughs> yeah. So, like you mentioned anyway. earlier, uh, this movie was not written out of a, like a literary source necessarily. It wasn't taken from a play. It wasn't taken from a novel. It's more or less original, right? Um, more or less original. Yes, it it borrows from a lot of different um, werewolf legends, mm-hmm. and I I think. I think it mostly comes from like you know the Germany area of Europe, like more like more towards what, like Eastern Germany or Eastern Europe. I mean, I see, I see. So to kind of like Dracula, like kind of kind of the same area that is where we're talking. And I also noticed like throughout the movie, like I was getting that sense a lot because a lot of the uh, 
architecture and the, especially the carriages look very, very uh, German. I which see. Would have been, which would have been interesting at this time because this would have also um, came out during the Nazi occupation. So to make a movie that would have like, you know, German architecture and it might have uh, uh, rubbed people the wrong way, I would think. You know, I thought for sure that the movie took place in England, but considering it's a stylistic choice, I could see how that could be relevant and interesting, especially considering how this movie debuted on December 12th, 1941, a few days after the attack on Pearl Harbor. So, yes, as with a lot of other releases throughout history and like the timing and the current events, I would be really interested to know just how much the influence of Pearl Harbor was on this movie like were people more apt to go see a movie was it escapist thing or was it more of a it's a somber time of mourning kind of like 9-11 and now we have to think about the future from here and so people maybe weren't as interested i mean it seemed to do well commercially right um you know i looked everywhere i could not find how much this money this movie made i mean they made like three sequels to this thing so i'm assuming it did well it would have had to it probably made its budget back, but like, dude, I legitimately couldn't find it anywhere. Like, not not a number. I found hmm. how much it costs to make. Right. But that aside, the you know this, regardless of where the werewolf legend came from, the, this movie popularized like the Americanized version of the werewolf. Agreed. I think that a lot of the tropes that were known about werewolves and wolfmen. Uh, we're brought to the table here. I, I know Wolfbane is something that we don't really see a lot today in werewolf lore, but it existed no. and it has persisted up until, I guess, recently as far as I know. Uh, one thing that I didn't realize, though, was that werewolves turning on a full moon is a relatively recent thing. Uh, and by that, I mean it was introduced in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman in 1944. That's the first documented case of that being a trigger for werewolfism, lycanthropy. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of interesting because in the movie they say the werewolf comes out in autumn with the wolfbane. Yes. So I guess just for like a full month they're turning into a werewolf, which is kind of cool, I guess. Like that's a different way to look at it. Like it's like, okay, if you can survive this month, you can survive the rest of the year. Yeah. That kind of makes sense, I guess. I mean, it would kind of be like if you're like a lady and like you have your like time but it's concentrated for the entire year into one month huh i would take that yeah i mean well i've never had i've never had a period so i i couldn't i couldn't say that for sure i would say this is kind of like a like a like an interesting thing for us to be talking about um i definitely think that we can ponder it but it's definitely not our place to say anything about it. You know, I would say, though, that, like, I feel like having it, like, not not that, but, like, we'll say your werewolfism, that happening once a year for, like, four to six weeks is much better than having it happen a couple of days or maybe even just one day out of the month for the lunar cycle. I mean, if you think about it, what, if the moon is full and you turn into a werewolf, well, if I needed to take a four-week vacation once a year, I feel like that's a lot more excusable than, hey... I'm at home. All my neighbors better forget that there's a man wolf running around. Well, okay, but you know what? What are you doing to better yourself as the werewolf? Like you know, this is going to happen. So what are you doing to make it better for yourself? Like, would you would you buy like a house in the middle of like the Mojave Desert with just shackles and shit that you know you can't break out of as the wolf? 
Uh, probably. I think that the location would be important. I think it would also really depend on the the practical circumstances. Like, let's say that if it's really cloudy, you can't see the full moon, you don't turn into a werewolf. Well, it sounds like you need to be living in, like, Seattle. Yeah, you could live in Seattle or you could live in, like, a windowless house. Y- your neighbors will definitely be, like, alarmed. But... That you live in a windowless house? Yeah, that, or maybe you could just get, like, blackout curtains. Ah, uh, see? That's practical solutions to modern problems. <laughs> practical solutions to old problems. Um, trying to think if there is anything else about this before I get into the history. History? Did you have anything else? I got nothing. Uh, I'm ready to dig right into these cast members, personally. Oh, into the cast members? Yeah. Well, that's what we're going to be spending most of our time on here. So, let's start with um, this movie stars Lon Chaney Jr., uh, yes. who is the son of legendary horror film actor Lon Chaney, if, yes. you, if you couldn't have guessed that. Yeah. Now, John, are you aware of uh, what roles that Lon Chaney played? Uh, believe it or not, yes, I am familiar with a few of them. Uh, he was in the lost film London After Midnight, and he is also really famous for being the hunchback in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and also, also, for uh, being the Phantom in The Phantom of the Opera. Uh, all of these being silent horror films, kind of mm-hmm. known for being the master of silent horror. He was like an icon. Yes, he he is a giant icon in the uh, horror world. Um, He was so willing to be a monster in movies, as well as his son, I suppose, Mm -hmm. that he he just loved it. And he passed that on to his son. His son's kind of a dick. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll get it. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. Lon Chaney Jr. is kind of a dick. Um, right. Lon Chaney Sr. was kind of legendary though. Uh, as far as I understand it, he actually had deaf parents and that's one of the reasons why he was able to take so well to silent film acting. Oh, I actually didn't know that. That's actually really cool. Yeah. So he's known for being very expressive and being very believable and having body language that speaks way louder than words ever could. And that's a key skill set to being an actor in silent film. So him growing up with parents, or at least one parent that was deaf, really gave him a skill set that primed him for becoming those types of things. Like I know uh, The Hunchback, he was kind of like, he had a very specific role he had to fill. He had a very specific posture and body shape. Like there was a lot of body language involved. And even with The Phantom and The Phantom of the Opera, it was a similar situation where he was more than just a face. He was more than just a guy acting between title cards. He embodied it. And when you don't have any sound, that's what makes and breaks a legend. Right. Um, it's You got your Lon Chaney's, you got your Charlie Chaplin's, you've got your uh, Buster Keats. Like, these people were able to make people either laugh, be horrified, or be touched without using their mouths, without using using their dumb word holes. Dumb word holes to touch people. So, ew. Um, but these, so these guys are legends for a reason. Like even in like just the acting community, people still study Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, Lon Chaney. Like y- if you can move people with just your appearance, your eyes, your face, then the words will just come naturally. Like you, at the end of the day, you still need to be able to embody that character and like make people feel you without even having to say a word. That that's why so many people love classical music as well is because they can feel what's going on in it as well as the technical things of classical music. I don't know. I don't like classical music all that much, but uh 
John might be able to attest to that. Yeah, it's not for everybody. <laughs> it's not for. <laughs> Shit, I, 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 I thought you, were, I thought you would have been excited, but okay. Uh, I um, mean, if we wanted to do a whole sidebar on classical music and like how important it is or isn't, like, oh, I will be more than happy to rant for a little while for you, but that's not what we're here to do today. We're here to talk about Lon Chaney Jr. and his forty-year-long acting career. Yes, his forty-year-long acting career, which included. Four appearances as the Wolfman. He is the only actor in the Universal Cinematic Universe that was able to play his character more than once. Yeah, I mean, even when we talk about like Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, Bela Lugosi came back and played Dracula later on, or not Dracula. Bela Lugosi came back and played Frankenstein later on instead of Boris Karloff. Yeah, correct. Um, which interesting. Interestingly enough, before I get into this craziness of this cast, Boris Karlov was actually supposed to play the Wolfman. Yes. Boris Karlov was supposed to play the Wolfman. He, uh, I, I can't remember why he decided not to do the project. Probably just didn't feel like doing it. Maybe he felt like he was being typecasted. Uh, speaking of someone who was afraid of being typecasted, but just quickly, quickly gave in, Bella Lugosi also wanted to play the Wolfman. Yes, uh, I knew about that one too. Bela Lugosi kind of has like a tragic past of like not getting the roles he wanted, but getting put in roles he like ended up loving, like Dracula. Like Dracula was one thing because he acted in it before, but again with the Frankenstein thing where he didn't want to be Frankenstein and then coming in here and I guess wanting to be the Wolfman, but not being able to be the Wolfman, but still getting to be in the movie with a character named after yourself. Correct. So I, I guess I guess that was kind of like a nudge, nudge, wink, wink to the audience. Yeah, I mean, they wanted to put the name on the bill. You know, they wanted to say Bela Lugosi, because I think about it, it's 10 years since Dracula at this point. Everybody knows who Bela Lugosi is. Right, like the Dracula has been re-released in theaters, I, I believe, every two or three years. So everyone knows who this guy is. Mm-hmm. So if you put him up on the poster, people are going to know who that is. Lon Chaney Jr. as well. People know who Lon Chaney is. True. So they're going to go see his son be a monster as well. Mm-hmm. In now, a literal and metaphorical sense. In a literal and metaphorical sense. So now that we have all those pieces together, um, I want to talk a little bit about the movie that comes after this, which is The Ghost of Frankenstein, and then Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, because this is where this shit gets really interesting. Lay it on me. I want to know. Okay. So... As, as you guys may not know, Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney also starred together in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. Mm-hmm. With Lon Chaney Jr. reprising his role of the Wolfman, like we mentioned before, while Bela Lugosi portrayed the monster, which we lovingly named Jeffrey last episode. Yes, and this time I feel like they did the character from the novel a little better justice and they brought in the whole dr frankenstein dick obsession thing and they just kind of made the beholder from dungeons and dragons but instead of tentacles they're dicks correct but what's interesting about this is if you remember from last episode bella lugosi declined the role of frankenstein or as (laughs) as the monster jeffrey he actually denied that role and then 11 something years later decided to play the role. What's also interesting to note about this movie is that it takes place directly after The Ghost of Frankenstein, where Lon Chaney Jr. 
played the monster. Hmm. So Lon Chaney Jr. played the monster in The Ghost of Frankenstein and then went on to play the Wolfman opposite Bela Lugosi, who played Dracula in in Dracula. Like, it's it's just insane, like, like, how they switch these guys around. So you could say that Frankenstein's monsters, modern-day equivalent, could be, like, Spider-Man, where there's just actors playing Spider-Man all the time and there's no continuity? Correct. And, like, they either just reboot it or redo it. Actually, as a matter of fact, I don't think they actually ever reboot anything in this uh, in this line of films. Hmm. The, 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 it just you're supposed to just accept that it's a different actor, I guess. I, I I mean, but also they made a lot of these movies so that you wouldn't have had to have seen any of the other movies. I guess that's true because in a world without streaming and without DVD and without home video in any way, it's easy to forget, or rather, it's easy to have missed one and then go to see another one, and it wouldn't really affect your viewing experience all that much because even if you saw the last movie, you might have seen it twice. Correct. Maybe, because, again, this was before home video. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the last little bit before we get into the breakdown is um, Claude Rains plays Lon Chaney Jr.'s character's father in this film. And what's interesting about that is Claude Rains played the Phantom of the Opera in the Universal Monsters remake. Mm, Well, when, when Lon Chaney's father also played the Phantom of the Opera in... The silent film version. It's, this, movie, it's so... this movie is full of horror pedigree. Like, I did not know this going in. Like, it's insane. It's insane the amount of coincidences in this movie. Uh, and there's true. one very big one that I'm saving for the very end because it'll just blow your mind. Yeah, uh, William Claude Rains actually went on to go play in Casablanca, Lawrence of Arabia, The Invisible Man as well. Um, mm-hmm. He did so many films and he was such, like, an acclaimed actor. And it's crazy to see him in a film like this so early on. I mean, I guess for him, this wasn't even that early on. He'd been acting for a long time. This wasn't his first role by any stretch, but he had a really, really long career, just like Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah, Lon Chaney Jr., I think, was active until 1971. Yeah, he went a really, really long time. Yeah, longer than his father, I believe. Yeah, uh, in this film, we've also got Evelyn Ankers, who played Gwen Conliffe, and she actually had a reoccurring role as well, appearing with Lon Chaney Jr. in future Universal films. Correct. Not necessarily always the same character, though. No, no, of course not. Uh, and then Maleva the Gypsy, played by Maria Uspenskia, a Russian actress who actually starred in a lot of films in Russia, came to the U.S. to act, and ended up being an acting coach, but still doing these types of roles and cameos throughout Hollywood. Huh. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yes. So actual Russian actress, just like how Bela Lugosi actually came from, I I guess what we can call Transylvania, near Transylvania and became Dracula. Became Dracula. And that's why, uh, you know, Dracula has the, that accent. Yes. It it is a, it is everyone doing a really bad Bela Lugosi impression. Isn't that crazy though? I mean, like even when he was doing the theatrical rendition of Dracula, like on a live stage, he didn't really know how to speak English. Like he would learn the script. It's like similar to when uh, like pop stars from other countries do verses or even choruses in English. They don't Mm -hmm. necessarily speak English, but they know that it's really, really recognizable and it's really like accessible to other people in the world. So they use English as like a platform. Like it's it's popular in K-pop to do that. Like 
clearly not everybody in K-pop speaks fluent English, but like they frequently use English verses and like choruses and stuff. So it's kind of a similar thing when you're Bella Lugosi and you come into this and you're like, I'm an actor. And you're like, okay, but your English isn't that good. Let me learn the script. So he performs in English, but doesn't actually speak fluent English until later on in life. That That's so interesting. And like, what a, what a great, like, way to describe that and make it into you know make it make sense to a modern audience like ours yeah and i mean i guess it's just something that's going to keep happening until we all speak one universal language set up by the like new world order bring on the new world order kill me anyway let's go let's go into the critical reception for this thing Ah, yes. So this one is right up there with Dracula, right up there with Frankenstein. Uh, Rocking an IMDb score, 7.3 out of 10. Pretty dang good. Uh, And a Rotten Tomato score of 94%. That is also pretty high. And considering how this one kind of straddles the line between the traditional talkies that don't really have like a score and don't really have like an awful lot of cinematic tropes, I guess we can say, uh, between that kind of thing and a modern film, it does really well for itself. Correct. Like, it's it, it's classy. Like, I, that's what I would describe this movie is, is classy. Like, this is a classy horror film. It is. However, to me, to me, I think it earns its 94% because that's 6% missing from, like, a Dracula or, like, a, uh, a Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. I just I just feel like it doesn't have the same charm. Hmm. Like, I just, agree. To me, like, this this feels like a... Like, they knew exactly what they were doing. I, this movie feels calculated to me. In, in fairness, this is one of the final form horror movies of the Golden Age, where anything in the Golden Age after this point will reflect this movie more than the old movies. And there's a few reasons for that, but one of the main reasons I've found is that movies like Frankenstein and Dracula come from a place in time that's mostly peaceful. People have expectations that are more traditional. Uh, like you said, Hayes Code came into effect. This movie came out in 1941. It literally dropped right after Pearl Harbor. And one thing that you'll notice after World War II ends, especially in American cinema, is that things change, like, a lot. Like, the things yeah. that people find scary in 1950 are totally different from what they thought were scary in 1940. Correct. Like, in 1950, it's like, you know, nuclear bombs and things of the like and like you know real things start happening in the world it's not just you know what's going on at your neighbor's house it's what's going on in the world like who's going to come kill us this week exactly the cold war changed things a lot in pop culture it changed a lot of things in cinema by proxy and that's pretty evident And as we get through the this week's movie you know the wolfman we go into like next week's film which is a little further down the line even you can see that evolution it's a lot like watching films from today like there is a pretty clear distinction between films that were made 10 years before 9-11 and films that were made 10 years after 9-11 and i'm not just talking about like picture quality and audio quality it's the overall tone it is like like movies that we go see today are are a lot darker, a lot more profane than they were even 10 years ago. And it's just what we find scary, what we find engaging, it changes with time. And that's nothing new, but it happens so fast now. And I feel like this is kind of an early example of that where, I mean, it's not like the Second World War was really short. It was exceedingly long considering how it was. But we do see a pretty dramatic shift afterwards once we introduce something new so in this case it was nuclear energy it was the atomic bomb it was the cold war it was all that stuff whereas like today it's terrorism and then you see like the proliferation of terrorism in films or in pop culture was so much more after 9-11 and, 
and torture. Torture is a very big thing. Like, I think a lot of people are afraid of, like, the torture of, like, what leads up to being murdered. Like, I've noticed that a lot in horror movies lately. Like, they, they really focus in on that. Like, Us, for example. It's, um, a lot, a lot of the scariness is the lead up to the kill. Like, how much torture can you bear? And I think that's a direct cause and effect of, of like, the 9-11 and, like, mass shootings that have been happening and sprawling up all over the United States in the past 10, 15 years, that it's, I think that's what people are most scared of now. It's like, it's not the dying part. It's the, it's the what, what leads up to that. I see where you're coming from. And it's something that we'll have to like, kind of give a bigger look at when we go forward. Uh, I can't imagine this is the last time we're going to do horror movies. So, I mean, Oh, absolutely not. I, if you guys haven't figured it out yet, horror is definitely my favorite genre mine too honestly it, it, i feel like i've spent more time doing horror movies than anything else or watching horror movies studying horror movies appreciating horror movies than anything else it, maybe i'm just a weirdo maybe i'm not maybe that's not so weird i don't want to be like oh, i'm so unique and different and like i uh, watch horror movies like eh, it's it's not that weird i guess it's it's not as weird as it used to be it's not like a it's not a red flag like it was in the early 2000s and the 90s where it's like, oh, he likes violent video games, likes horror movies, likes Marilyn Manson. He's going to kill people. Yep. Lock him up. All right. Well, I think it's time that we do the deep dive into the meat of the movie. What do you say, Zach? I think that's a great idea. All right. Well, let me wrap this up for you in a nice, neat little package. <clears throat> Larry Talbert returns to his family estate in Lanwelly, England, following the death of his brother. He visits traveling fortune tellers with friends and is attacked when one of the fortune tellers turns into the dreaded werewolf. The werewolf is killed, but Larry is bitten in the attack, making him into a werewolf himself. Larry tries to understand his new identity, but cannot get his father, the town doctor, or his new date to understand the gravity of what's happened to him. In the days following the attack, Larry finds that he is unable to control his transformations at night. More attacks occur. Accusations of murder are whispered by the people of his childhood home, and at a tragic turn of events, Larry transforms and is killed by his father with a very silver-headed cane that Larry used to kill the werewolf that transformed him. Ooh. Yeah, so this movie, is just like all the other ones, it's rather short, honestly. It's, I think it's about an hour and ten minutes. A little less, I think. A little less, yeah. So let's... Um, my first note that I had is in this opening scene. Um, what the hell happens to the aspect ratios? Did you notice that, like, when Larry's in the car with the driver and when they're looking at the uh, the mansion that his father lives in, the the car and the mansion shots are two different aspect ratios, and it drove me absolutely up the wall. And I could not find any information as to why that happened. And if any listener knows why, please tell me, because it drives me absolutely fucking crazy. All right, so there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. Uh <laughs> Question one, did I notice the change in aspect ratio? Uh, answer one, no, I'm not a fucking nerd. Uh, okay, it was, okay, <laughs> did you not notice the little bars on the sides getting bigger and smaller as they were changing? It was so fucking obnoxious. Like, I, I don't know why they would do that. Why would you do that? I, I think it may have something to do with the type of shooting. The, okay, so basically, like, the way that they're doing this car scene is they have a rotating background behind the car. The car is stationary. So, Correct. I imagine that that has something to do with it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they had to use a different type of camera to capture that type of motion effectively. I don't know. I, I just watched I the movie, man. I don't know either, but 
what I do know is that the rest of the movie is in the same aspect ratio as it as it was when they filmed the mansion. It's so literally it only happens one time and it just bothered the shit out of me. Anyway, I, I had to get that off my chest. You I'm know so what? sorry. I'm glad you did. I'm glad that we can move forward from this and not be burdened by aspect ratio. So Correct. Uh, yeah, so we got this scene. We've got the intro with the lycanthropy definition on the uh, encyclopedia thing. That's something that we see a little bit more in the future. That, that's not an uncommon film trope, I think, from today. Um, we also have a lot of music involved. They really lean hard into the soundtrack, especially here in the beginning. And uh, it's big, it's dramatic, it's in your face, and it lets you know that big stuff's about to happen. Uh, just kind of like with the intro for Frankenstein. Frankenstein didn't have a whole film score, but the intro and theme to Frankenstein was very big, bombastic, in your face, and it lets you know that something big was going to happen. So Larry arrives in the castle. Uh, he distinguishes himself from everybody else immediately. You can tell that, like, he's comfortable here, but he's not like these people. His posture is very different. His um, mannerisms are very different. It's kind of an interesting dynamic. It's kind of like me growing up in the suburbs and then eventually in Atlanta and then going to visit my family in Alabama. Hmm. Very much so like that. It's like, mm, we're different. <laughs> yeah, that's one way of looking at it, I guess. <laughs> so. Well, it's it, it it's it's just like a... Larry comes off as like like a big city boy, like a like a Ivy League guy coming in, and like he does think all these people that live in this town are really dumb. See, that's like you can tell. I got something a little different. I got that like this place had a lot of history and was really sophisticated, and that Larry feels almost overwhelmed by the nature of things here because they're so different from where he comes from, but he's familiar with it. So it's almost like he tries to slide right in, but you can tell from a distance that he's not from here, quote unquote. Like he grew up here, but you're not from here. You know what I'm saying? You didn't You didn't become an adult and your soul didn't get crushed here. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it, I guess. Um, okay. So Larry's dad, Sir John, takes him upstairs to the observatory that he's building. Turns out Larry's got a little bit of experience building, like, uh, lens devices or working with optics or something like that. And he doesn't waste any time being a peeping Tom. No. And um, we'll get into it more when we get into when he uh, when he goes and meets his uh, PP. Is, is that what you would call her? A PP? Like she's the person being peeped on. I, I, she's the PP. I I don't like. No, you cannot just call people PP. There's too. There's not enough difference between PP and PPE. Well, I, I imagine there was a hyphen o over the the e and PP. Uh, I think when you should say Larry went to go visit his PPE and Larry went to go visit his PP. That's just totally different thing. You can't just do that. <laughs> you can't just throw apostrophes in a word and be like, oh yeah, they'll understand what I mean. Or this might not even have an apostrophe in it. When you spell this out, this may just be P-E-E-P-E-E. -E -E -E. That's P-P. <laughs> no, no, you gotta add the third E at the end with the apostrophe over it. They'll get it. They'll just think it's French. <laughs> I, I need to not talk about this anymore. So it's a little weird. It's a little voyeuristic, and he wastes no time after finding this person going down and meeting Gwen. Gwen, who very beautiful, by the way. Oh, of course. They, they, they're like all the all these starlets are always beautiful. I love this like classic like Hollywood look. Like especially like even like men and women like they they're just all so beautiful in these movies. Like they make them look 
amazing. Yes, but they're not like an unrealistic or unachievably beautiful type thing. No, you know, we're like nowadays. It's like it's like the difference between eating organic chicken and eating a GMO chicken nugget. <laughs> um, correct. <laughs> so like. Yes, the McNugget looks really appetizing, and yes, it looks very clean and put together, and yes, it t- probably tastes good too, but like, did you see Super Size Me? I- I've seen Super Size Me, but from what I understand, McDonald's has shaped up since then, but I don't know, it's been a couple years, so they may have gone back to what they used to do. I mean, there's... However, I will say, if you have a Wendy's near you, and you're choosing to go to McDonald's, Donald's instead, you're fucking up. I think that there is a, a small difference between eating emulsified chicken nuggets and eating pink goo chicken nuggets. Like, I don't feel like there's a big difference. Uh, maybe controversial, maybe bad timing. Chick-fil-A has real chicken nuggets? I mean, dude, look, Chick-fil-A is always going to have its controversies, but you got to separate the hate from the taste, man. I would reference you back to the Dracula episode and the Truett Kathy Goblin King thing. He's dead. We've we've killed him. He's fine. Hopefully I don't want to be implicated in this. this time. <laughs> so you you keep your weave business over there. <laughs> My weave business. Uh, yeah, W E apostrophe V E. Just like P E E P E E apostrophe E. No, that's not how that. <laughs> no, stop that. <laughs> the English is a bastardized language, John boy. You can oh. add E's and apostrophes wherever the fuck you want. We're moving on. We're off base. So Larry <laughs> meets up with Gwen. Uh, he introduces himself. He's doing a real neckbeard thing. And he's just like, oh, those earrings that I like. And she's like, what? And I feel like you could not do this today. Like, I feel oh, like. Oh, <laughs> no, absolutely not. This guy would have been me too so fucking quick. Yes, he, oh, God, I just, I was watching this whole thing, I'm like, did they really think that this was, like, okay? Like, that this was, like, charming? I don't know, because she seems receptive to, as a matter of fact, they they pretty much prove uh, when he comes back to get her at eight, like he says he's going to, even though she keeps saying no, she's still looking for him. Like, so, she's obviously playing hard to get, so, like, this this is a very, very toxic thing to show young people. Yeah, no means because yes is not a message that's aged very well. No, it is not. And if someone says no, take it as no. Always. Every single time. Don't do this. Don't do this. This may have worked in 1941. It was still creepy then. It's creepy now. Yeah, there's a lot of don'ts. Don't look at people through telescopes. Uh, don't persist when they say no. Uh, don't try to buy stuff from people that they don't want to sell you. Uh, there's a lot of don'ts, so we'll just leave it at oh, that. Also, also, I, I can't believe you left this off that list. Telling them that you were peeping on them. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like. Oh God! Like the, this scene was kind of cringeworthy from a 21st century standpoint. Oh, 100 percent. But I digress. Even today, you could just go up to him and be like, oh yeah, that uh, pair of yoga pants that you wear looks so good in them. And like, what? Are you, are you okay? Are you having a medical emergency? Oh yeah, I, I saw you through the Instagram. Get out of my fucking, like, get out, what are you doing here? Leave. Go away. I'm calling the police. Uh, yeah. Always just call the police. Just call them. He Every gets the time. date somehow. He gets the date. 
he shows back up. She comes out again, encouraging bad behavior, probably. And uh, Jenny comes along for the ride. So they did that much right. You know, if some creepo wants to have a date and you just got to go, you may as well bring a friend. Uh, so Jenny comes along and they go out to where the visitors, the fortune tellers have come into town um, so that they can get their palms read. Right. And I guess this was a thing people did back then. I thought people were a little more God-fearing back then. Because I, I remember even when I was a kid, like, my, my mom and my grandparents would always be like, don't get your palm read. It's it's the work of Satan. Yeah, and then we went to college, and then I got, like, a shirt with, like, a tarot card on it or something. Yeah, and nobody said anything about that when I went home. It's like they dropped it pretty fast, I guess. Yeah, they, they dropped it pretty quick. Or that, or they don't actually know what a tarot card looks like. Yeah, and you know what I actually found really interesting, and I didn't find this out until much later on, but, like, the area in which we grew up in, like, the west side of Atlanta, uh, I, I don't know if this term's controversial or not, but gypsies? We could say gypsies, right? Um, yeah, from, okay, from what I understand, and please someone correct me if I'm wrong, yes and no, you can't say gypsies. Yes, if you're talking about the actual group of people that identify themselves as gypsies from the area that they're from now just calling like and i i'm going to just try and say this as lightly as possible a uh, migrant homeless person who also does palm readings and things like that that's not a gypsy and that's offensive i see kind of okay so we're just gonna call gypsies so as far as I understand it, the area in which we grew up had a very large concentration of people of, like, gypsy heritage? Uh, yeah, the, um, <laughs> this is gonna sound so freaking bad. Uh, are you, are you referring to the gypsy trailer park? Uh, not specifically, but I'm pretty sure that was a thing. Oh, it's still a thing. Ah. Uh... It's, it's over by Chev Ronalds. Oh boy, I love the Chev Ronalds. Oh, uh, uh... Oh, dude, Chev Ronalds. So basically, they go and get their palms read. Uh, Bella, the gypsy, played, of course, by Bella Lugosi, uh, reads the palm and sees the pentagram. That's We know now that the pentagram is the mark of the werewolf, and if you see the pentagram, or rather, if the werewolf sees the pentagram on someone, it marks them as the next victim. They know that while they're conscious, and when they become the werewolf, they go immediately there, and then they wake up and they pick up where they left off. So they remember the pentagram, but they don't remember the attack. Uh, and we'll see more on that later. Uh, right after this, Bella transforms into the werewolf and attacks Jenny in the woods. This is after Larry kind of went off and did a thing, and he's talking to Gwen. They're kind of walking around and stuff. And um, the attack happens. Yep, it, it definitely happens. Um, J- Jenny dies uh, as Larry's trying to save her. Yes. He he hits uh, Bella, the werewolf, with the club. Yeah, a silver-tipped cane. Silver-tipped cane. So I, I guess this is also where the uh, the silver kills the werewolf thing comes from as well. Yeah, I think uh, I think this is maybe the werewolf's biggest weakness. And I would be interested to know if this applies while he's a human. I don't think it does, because I'm pretty sure he carries the cane around with him while he's a human. Yeah, so, it can't, so silver probably can't hurt them in human form, but once they are rendered wolfy... At night, it, it's immediately all silver is off. So I guess if you were just really tired of being a werewolf, you could, like, plan out when you're going to become a werewolf next. And, I don't know, like, while you're a human, insert, like, a sterling silver butt plug. And then when you become a werewolf, you just die. Um, I was more thinking, like, a like a silver suit of armor. But you know what? Go off. 
guys. Oh, uh, we're getting off base again. So, yeah. Larry takes care of the wolf, hits him with the cane, they escape, and the constable investigates later after the attack and finds that Bella is dead, uh, Jenny is also dead, and that Bella's been killed with this cane. They find the cane at the scene of the crime, and that leads him right back to the castle. That leads him right back to Larry. His wounds have already healed. Very kind of strange. Yeah, so, like, they definitely suspect him from the beginning, but they, they can't... They can't pin it to him exactly, other than his cane was there, which I think is enough for a trial, honestly. Especially considering that uh, Maleva, Bella's mother, saw them, and Jenny was out with Gwen and Larry, and people knew about that already, and that word travels so fast in a small town. So after all this happens, uh, Bella can't believe that it wasn't a wolf. He doesn't believe that it could have been Bella, so he goes to the church, opens the casket, and sees for himself. He can't deny it anymore. That's Bella. He's dead. And so after that, he talks to Gwen about it, and Jenny's mother appears. And she is... Oh, she pissed. (laughs) Yeah, she's mad and she's annoying. (laughs) Well, I mean, okay, as annoying as someone whose daughter's just been murdered can be. Like, she didn't seem upset. She just seemed like, I'm getting to the bottom of this. You were never good for my Jenny. My Jenny's dead because of your daughter. Like, yes. It's, it, it's it, like, she's so focused on, like, blaming Gwen for this that she doesn't even really seem upset. Like, I don't know if maybe that's because women were still viewed as property in this time. Like, Oh, Jenny was our prettiest daughter. We were going to get at least four sheep for that bitch. Ah, uh, yes. A few shilling, maybe, if you're classy like that. A few shilling. Nah, they're trained straight sheep, dude. One's for fucking, the other three are for food. I, we already talked about this set. Chimeras are not allowed. <laughs> it doesn't mean I can't say it. Anyway, true. That's true. Uh, So after this is when Frank appears. Frank is Gwen's fiance. We knew about him from the beginning because Gwen told Larry and Larry insisted they go out anyway, which is kind of weird. But all right. His dog won't stop barking at Larry. This is another clue that something weird's happened. Right. So like this dog knows that Larry is also a dog, but he knows that he's not a good dog. So he's scared of him. He's he's not a good boy. He's not a good boy. Yeah, the, the translation would have been, this is not a good boy. This dog shall not be trusted. That's a man, buddy. He is dog. He is dog. So they go to the festival. Uh, this is the celebration of Bella's life. Uh, other people from the gypsy community show up, which got me to thinking, uh, after this scene is over, and again, skip, skipping ahead a little bit here. After the scene is over, the, uh, the gypsies, they pack up camp and they leave really fast saying, there's a werewolf in the camp. Is this why Bella and his mother were traveling alone? Um, possibly, maybe to keep, um, yeah, I I would, actually, I didn't think about that. That's a good point. Huh. Well, Maleva, Bella's mom, gives Larry a charm, it's a pentagram charm, and it's supposed to protect him from werewolfism, I guess, or supposed to protect him maybe from himself. I don't really know exactly what that's supposed to mean, but he gives it to Gwen, saying that it will protect her. She doesn't really understand, and that's when the camp disperses. Yeah, the camp, and they get out of there fast as fuck. Yeah, and there's a weird transition between this scene and the next, where it's there's an awful lot going on on screen. It's real busy. It's almost like trippy in nature. I haven't seen anything like that from another film from this era. Yeah, it's definitely, it moves along at breakneck pace, because I, I guess that's how Larry feels while this is happening. 
It makes sense. I mean, he went from being a totally normal dude to being a werewolf in about, like, 12 hours, so I, I, I get it. Yeah, I definitely get it. Yeah, and after this is when we see the first transformation. He goes home, he's not feeling great, he starts looking in the mirror, he notices he's not quite himself, and then he just, like, goes through puberty for a second time? He just becomes <laughs> he just, a hobbit? He, well, that's what we see, is we see him become a hobbit. His feet and, um, just get super hairy. Yeah, and this is the first First of um the slow dissolves is what they call them in the film industry. Like it's um they they film for a second with him with some la- hair on his legs and then like going up and up and up and up and that's why like it kind of looks like the film is lapping over itself. So it's that's like how a, they did that, like a primitive stop motion, like what we would see in a claymation movie. Uh correct. It's um it's a little more um technical and like they actually I. <sighs> Forgive me if I'm wrong. Forgive me if I'm wrong. But what I believe they did was they did like a long exposure on mm. each on each different um, layer that they added on mm-hmm. to the makeup and everything. And so and then they would speed that footage up and overlap it with the other ones. And that's how they get that uh, dissolve. Man, analog film was so different. Yeah, it it's really... Di- and it, we still do the same things today. We're just able to control it better uh through digital means like you can actually just render those things a lot better today true i guess cgi you know has its ups and downs i mean uh, going forward with the plot he attacks the grave digger that's the first thing he does when he gets outside he finds a grave digger he attacks him the constable finds the second attack scene and the wolf tracks again yeah and it's like well i guess there's definitely a wolf here and yet for a town known to uh talk about werewolves a lot they sure as fuck don't think it's a werewolf at all that's true i kind of thought that when i was watching it too i was like so coincidence that this stuff just started happening and they mentioned the coincidence part they think larry's just doing it for shits and giggles but like or that he's going like a little crazy or something yeah 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 but like again for people who seem to be very aware of that type of thing they really don't seem to think that's the reason like i I don't really know how that works i i don't really care he wakes up the next morning maybe he had too many lycanthropic lemonades and he just can't imagine what happened the night before he's not wearing his shoes there's muddy paw prints all over the place i don't know if this is a haze code thing or not but if he attacked a guy and ripped his throat out he would be covered in blood this would definitely be a haze code thing i just th- there would be more of a blood trail than a mud trail yeah well like if you notice there's no blood in anything especially even when um you know you see that larry has a wound it's it's very minimal yeah like like you it's supposed to be little to no blood they don't like even... I, I i think blood can only be used in like a medical sense like if the, it was like a medical instruction video even when he manages to show the scar from his werewolf attack, it is truly just a star-shaped mark. It's not a scar that looks like a star. It is like a pentagram star shape on his body. Correct. It's not like a wolf bite. It's truly just a thing. And that morning when he wakes up, they go to church. So this Correct. is something Hang he... on, hang on. I have to stop you there. This is one of those history things that I, I told you I would pepper in. Ooh, lay it on me. Okay, so... That church, that set that they walk onto, that is the same exact set from The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the silent version which Lon Chaney's father starred in. No shit. Dude, I would not be shitting you. Like, this shit is crazy. It is the exact same set. So Lon Chaney Jr. 
playing a monster, walking onto the same set his father did to play a different monster. Man, well, is, is Quasimodo a monster? It depends on the way you view the character, I guess. Uh, I think he's more tragic than a monster. I don't think that's fair to call him a monster, but anyway. I mean, in some ways, you could call a wolfman tragic, too. I mean, Frankenstein, he is for sure a monster, but he's also tragic. Well, I guess there is a bit of tragedy to each of them, but like Quasimodo is just a guy that, that was born with a disfigurement. Like, he's not a monster. Oh, yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Okay, not the same thing. But that is crazy, though, that it would be the same set and that they would act on the same stage years apart. Literal, like, decades apart. Dang. I mean, it's a beautiful-looking set. I see why they wanted to reuse it. Yeah, it. I mean, that's the thing. They built these things to last because, like, they'll use them again and again and again and again. And I seem to remember in the recent past there being some controversy over Universal finally getting rid of a lot of these historical movie sets. Uh, I would need to look that up because I'd be mad too. Like that it should it belongs in a museum, not to be destroyed. All right, Indiana Jones. Well, I guess we're gonna have to get to that one at some point too, right? Hell yeah! All right. Well, they go to church. They think it's going to be easy going, you know, they, they did it when he was a kid, everybody's going to recognize him, and they do, but Jenny's mom got to him first, and the gossip spread, everybody thinks he's a weirdo, everybody thinks he's disturbed, and maybe he is both of those things, but it's not what they think it is. It's like, yeah, I'm crazy, but fuck you. Yeah, exactly. So they go back to the castle, or at least Larry does, I guess his father comes back later, and they're talking to Dr. Lloyd about mental illness and the power of the mind and all that kind of stuff. This is a really solid dialogue that goes on at this point in the movie. Yeah, it it's it moves the story along without like getting bogged down too much. Exactly. Like, I feel like that's one thing they did really well in this movie is they know when it's monster time and they know when it's dialogue time. Right, because the dialogue is what makes the monster part scary or enjoyable. Exactly. Exactly. So you know, and that's what I love about certain old Hollywood movies is the dialogue just makes up for, you know, not having special effects. Um, the, the dynamics of the film make up for, like, you know, what you'd be missing from a modern film and, like, why so many people don't don't want to watch old movies. And I don't get it. It's an attention old movies span are thing. great. Is not an attention span thing? Because these movies are an hour and ten minutes or less. They are, Most but... movies you go to nowadays are, like, two hours long they are but they're chock full of stuff and there's a lot more i guess content to digest it's the nature of the thing itself so like if you go to see a movie you're going out of your way to watch it like now i guess now specifically it's even more different because if i just wanted to veg out or i just wanted something to i don't know relax on the weekend i'm just gonna pop youtube up on my phone like i'm not gonna bother going all the way to the movie theater but if you are going to a movie theater you're going there with a specific purpose and i want to be completely like mentally stimulated while I'm watching the film, and they deliver on that. Like, that's what they do now, it seems. Like, even dramas, even, like, films that are supposed to be more than just an action sequence or a fucking clown that's killing people. Like, <laughs> this, this little it plug for you there. Um, it's it's an experience, and maybe that just means we've returned to, like, the, the home of film. It's supposed to be an experience. Right, it's supposed to be an experience, and it's not supposed to be, like, a... Um... <sighs> I, I can't remember who said this, but, like, like, in the 90s, you had, like, vanity films. Yeah. Like, like, the 90s is very much like, oh, Jennifer Aniston's in this, or, you know, Brad Pitt's in this. You should go see it for that reason. Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, I mean, we still have a little bit of that. Like, we have, 
it's some of it's called stunt casting. Like you, mm. like you'll put like a really big name in like a small role, kind of like they did with Bella Lugosi in this movie. Yeah, it's like a little more than a cameo, a little less than a major role. Right, and that's stunt casting, and that's what the '90s was chock full of. It was like that. It seemed like there was very little substance, mm-hmm. but I mean, and even now, I guess there's like not a lot of substance unless you're going to see like a or an original movie, mm-hmm. like a movie that's not based on a prior property. Oh which, yeah, which there are very few. Yeah, very, very few. Um, and it's like, I'm guilty of it. Like, I'll go see a remake or a sequel. Like, I mean, just because that's what's coming out. And I love going to the movies, so I kind of have to deal with it. And because of the part of Pennsylvania I live in right now, like, I mean, I, I can't go see independent movies the way I used to in Atlanta. But, you know, it's just, it sucks. You know what is great, though? Have you seen the movie Hereditary? Yeah. Yeah, that's an original one for you. There are very few, like, like truly original movies, especially horror movies, that I am that I am able to see these days. That one stuck with me. That was a yeah. good one. If you liked that one, uh, the, the same director did uh, Midsommar. Mm-hmm. And uh, I talked about that movie a little bit on the Wicker Man uh, 1973 episode. Definitely check that movie out. I think it could- What's that on Blu-ray? Um, probably around the time of this airing. Okay. Or maybe well. a little after. So, I, I'll, I mean, I'm definitely going to buy it, and I'll definitely have the digital code, so I'll definitely give you my password. All right. So this is the finale of the movie. Uh, the townsfolk go out in the woods. They set up some traps. They set up a tree stand. They're going to find this monster. There's just been too many people getting killed by this thing, and they're kind of done with it. Yeah, much like in Frankenstein. Yeah, this one, it's kind of an interesting dynamic with monsters, though, because, like, with Frankenstein's monster, like, there's a castle, and that's where the monster lives, and it comes out, but, like, you get something else like Dracula, like, you have to go to the place, you know, where the thing is, but this is not like that, like, the werewolf is coming to you, more or less, like, you have to go to the woods, it's kind of like zombies, like, zombies come to you, they come to your front door, and that's what makes them scary, they will find you in your happy place, and they will take you out. The Wolf right. is a little bit more like that than like a Dracula type character or like a mummy type character. Yeah, Dracula has to be invited. Um, Frankenstein, you, you gotta live where Frankenstein lives. Werewolf, thems is everywhere. They're gonna find you. Yeah, they're you can spread them. You can spread lycanthropy. Yeah, like if you if you are a werewolf and I guess your goal is to make more werewolves, you could just go all over the world and make them. Yeah, and maybe that's what happened here. Maybe you have the traveling people, and Bello was traveling around a lot. He's doing his whole you know thing in the in the carriage, doing some palm reading thing. He goes a lots of places. He gets a lot of opportunity to attack people and then leave. So it's a lifestyle that works for someone who is a werewolf. But you also have those dangers of you're introducing that to a new place. It's almost like a plague of sorts. That the werewolfism, not not fortune telling. Yeah, I, I guess. It's a sickness. It's like a. It's a thing that's going to kill you eventually. Like someone is going to kill you. Right. It that's could happen. Movie, that's what this movie shows. Is like you're definitely gonna die. It could happen to anybody. Right. And it's it can only end in tragedy. Like there's no cure. Right. Larry gets caught in a trap in the woods, and Maleva appears and turns him back into a human. Uh, which is kind of weird. If I woke up and was in a bear trap, I would not be nearly as fine as he was. This is one of those like. Hayes code things again right where he can't be tortured quote unquote on screen right you can't do you can't do that sorry um you know just thinking like this he's stuck in a bear trap compared to um did you see the latest season of it's always sunny in philadelphia i have not seen it yet 
Okay. Um, the, I, I won't spoil it, but there's a very hilarious scene where Charlie Tay gets stuck in a bear trap. I now I gotta watch it. I, I always wanted to, but I wouldn't make time for it, and now I've got to do it because dude, I'm... it's it's ten episodes. Watch the whole. I, me and my girlfriend watched the whole thing in like two days. I'm it's, down. It's it's a freaking great season, man. I'm so down. So Larry, after getting out of the trap, returns to the town and he starts throwing rocks at Gwen's window. Uh, they meet up. Gwen insists on going with him and running away together, or something like that, and he says no. This is an interesting turn of events from before, where he was so eager to get in, so eager to, you know, get an opportunity to show her who he is and get to know her, and now that she's saying, things are so crazy, let's just get out of here, he says no. It's like, he, he does seem to have a bit of wisdom there, despite his almost childish nature before. And this is where the pentagram mark appears. Gwen gets it on her. And he sees it, and he cannot handle that. He flees because he couldn't bear the thought of hurting her, I guess. And this is when the townsfolk see kind of what's going on, and they assemble to go find the werewolf. Uh, they kind of sound the alarm, I guess. And uh, they go into the woods. Gwen is running around trying to find him. Uh, Maleva, again, appears with her cart and offers to help Gwen, but she just runs off into the woods alone to look for him? That dumb... Duh, fuck. <laughs> uh, duh, dumb bitch award goes to Gwen. This is like neck and neck with Barbara from Night of the Living Dead, where she just starts running around like aimlessly. Yep, just just dumb. Just, why would you do that? Someone's offering you help. Take it. It is a writing thing, I'm sure, where it's just like, maybe that's what people expected a character like that to do at the time. I, I don't think that that's really something that we see an awful lot of today. But again, Night of Living Dead was, what, 1967? So that's over 20 years later, still doing it. And then you get other movies, even like Scream. Like, Scream is self-aware, and they make fun of this. Right. And then right. you get, like, movies like Scary Movie, which are parodying Scream, which is parodying this. <laughs> the, the the horror spoof genre in the 90s was very interesting. Well, we're, 90s and early 2000s. We're going to have to hit that at some point. We'll, we'll, we will definitely hit that at some point. This is where things come to a head. Larry's in the woods, he's kind of creeping on Gwen again, but this time, like, menacingly, <laughs> he says the werewolf, he attacks Gwen, that's where his dad, Sir John, appears with the cane that Larry insisted he take with him, and he fends off the werewolf, not knowing it's Larry, his son, and he kills him with the silver-headed cane. How, how does that feel? <laughs> if he, maybe if Larry would have just not bought that cane and not been a creep, this may have never happened. You know what? I think you're right, and I think despite this movie not having, like, a solid literary foundation, this kind of thing is almost Shakespearean in nature. Correct, and I, honestly, from a modern standpoint, you could look at this as a, uh, a commentary on toxic masculinity, except if you subtract the fact that uh, Gwen actually likes this creep. Yeah, but she likes him more after she sees him be a vulnerable person. Right, and, like, that's what... That's what not only, like, you know, the opposite sex or the same sex, no matter what you're into, that's what people are attracted to, like, even just as friends. Mm -hmm. Like, people want to know who you are, not who you pretend to be. Exactly, because we all have that thing inside of us where we know our insecurities, we know what we're like, we, like, we know there is a real us, and that there is a, we'll call it a professional us, you know, like, I'm not going to be the same person hanging out with, like, 
my wife or some of my friends that I am at work. Like there's just a different thing. There's, there's a divide people who want to get to know you want to see that person. And I think that is kind of illustrated here where Larry kind of shows up and he's a pretty genuine guy, despite how weird he is sometimes. And that opens the door, but it's not until he's like an afflicted person and he's struggling that she wants to help him and that he, he exposes a little bit more of himself there in like a figurative way, not in like a literal way. Correct. Yeah, I I completely agree. Good analysis, John. Hey, I'm learning things about movies. It's almost like we wanted to make a podcast about that. That's insane. That's insane. But yeah, um, and just really quick, just really quick because we need to wrap this up, but... That that's kind of what monster movies became, especially like in the in the sixties and seventies. The monster represents a, a something about society, like something or something that's haunting the main character. Like the monster they turn into, or the monster that's chasing them, represents something about them. Like um, I remember when I was in film school, Halloween as an example. Um, Michael Myers and his frustration represents Laurie's. Uh, the the main girl character in Halloween mm-hmm. represents her anger and frustration of like losing her virginity or like having a boyfriend like her other friends. Yeah, kind of like you have Dracula, and it's the frustration of uh, not being able to drink as much human juice as you want. Uh, right, you got like, Frankenstein, uh, who's got the whole like I can't just put dicks on whatever I want thing, and then um, you've got actually, the Wolfman. Frankenstein proves that you can uh, just put whoever's dick on whoever that you want. Mm, because you never know when someone's going to sew a monster dick on a monster body. So at this point in the movie, Larry is dead. This is how they close the film. It's a tragedy in a sense where his dad kills him not knowing because he didn't believe him the whole time. Maybe if he would have honestly believed him, he wouldn't be dead. I mean, there's a lot of things that could have happened that would have changed the outcome of the movie. But I mean, uh, Gwen survives. His father survives. I guess life continues on as normal for them, but Larry kind of died a tragic death here. Correct. And last bit of history for you, and this this is the crazy one. Okay, so at Larry's death scene, there's an actor named Gibson Gowland, who's one of the men that comes to carry Larry's body off or whatever as part of the mob. Now, hold on to your seats. Gibson Gowland was also one of the actors of the men who was present at the death of Phantom of, in the Phantom of the Opera starring Lon Chaney Sr. It's just so, such a small world. Dude, j- so Gibson Gowland was at the death scenes of both Lon Chaney Sr. and Jr. in two different films that are about 20 years apart. That is weird. It's almost like they planned that. I... I don't think they did. From what I read, they did not plan this. This just kind of happened. Like, it, it was a weird happenstance. I guess it's a weird world we live in where, like, I don't know. Like, there's so many people around today. There's so much more opportunity to have different people in projects and in your life and in whatever. But, like, back then, I guess it really wasn't like that, was it? No. I mean, like, a lot of these actors, are, they, they would film, like, two, three, four films a day. Like, so they, they would just shuffle them along. And, like, these guys, a lot of times, especially if they were just, like, bit parts, they, they would get in there a lot. Like, they'd be like, oh, go be in this mob scene here. Uh, go be in this crowd scene here. Uh, here's two lines. Go over here and do that one. Dang. What a yes. different world we live in now. 
Yeah, so there's like a lot of, um, and we'll talk about them as like the movies come along, but there's a lot of unsung heroes, especially in like the golden era of Hollywood. Man, so that kind of brings it full circle here. I mean, that's the end of the film. And we're beginning to see the evolution through the golden age of Hollywood. You know, it kind of started off right around when talkies became a thing. We had The Wizard of Oz. Uh, We had a few other movies back then that were just really iconic. And then we start with the monster movies, you know, in 1931. Um, I guess technically that was before The Wizard of Oz. But um, just using that as a point of reference for this, like, heyday of Hollywood. Uh, Dracula, Frankenstein, back-to-back. That's what, like, set this as a thing. It made it a genre. It made it real for people. And they were very traditional, very, uh, I want to say conventional ideas on what's scary. Now we have the Wolfman. It could happen to you. It could be anybody. And then as we move on into later 40s and 50s films, things get really real. It becomes about the sci-fi. It becomes about the, the menace of man. The menace of man or the menace of uh, what can't be explained. Right. Almost in some ways a callback to, uh, like, Frankenstein playing God. Like, uh, how did it get this way? How did we make it this bad? And we'll see some of that in next week's episode. Yeah, and I, I guess this goes into uh, goes into your question that you had for me for this week. Uh, why don't you go ahead and ask it? Yeah, of course. So, watching this movie... I noticed that it was different from the films of the 1930s. So, you know, we had Dracula, we had Frankenstein, we have this one. It's significantly different, and not just because the camera quality is different and because it's got a soundtrack and all that stuff, but it's an evolution of horror. Again, it could happen to you. It's not some, it's, it is telling a story, but it's telling it in a way that makes it relatable. Right. And it makes it scary because walking home from the theater that night, who knows? Maybe the werewolf's out there. Right. And um, that's, and you're asking, like, what's the difference between that and, like, modern horror? Well, no, I think we've already touched on this a couple of times, really. It's like, we have this older stuff, and then this is where things start to change. We get the monster movies of the 50s, where it's all, like, nuclear this, and, like, sci-fi that, and aliens, and the thing from another world coming up. And we evolve further on, and once we, we see these milestones, like the Second World War being a big one, where things change big after that. Vietnam was another era where things just really changed in film. And mm-hmm. even today, I mean, again, we live in a post-9-11 world now. Watching a film like Die Hard is totally different now, considering the implications, as it would have been at the time of its release. Correct. And, and I guess if we're talking about this specific era of horror films, like I talked about, with Halloween, like the monster is the manifestation of the of like a problem or a societal problem. It's kind of this way with these classic movies, but I see them more as cautionary tales. Like you shouldn't do this or this will happen. Like um like Dracula, you shouldn't let strange people into your house because you may be inviting in something like a Dracula. Uh Frankenstein, you should not play God. Because this is what happens, you know. And the Wolfman, um, you shouldn't be a creep. It, it'll it'll get you into sticky situations. Like they're all cautionary. I see what like you mean. Like it's it's not necessarily, you know. If we take a modern look at some of these, you can see different themes, or you can apply themes from the literary versions of some of these movies. But at the end of the day, they're cautionary, and like they they treat them as if they're cautionary. Like it's almost like a like a after school special, but maybe like not as preachy or weird. Mm-hmm. It's um 
you know, it's you need to be careful because these things can and will happen to you. And like not not become a monster necessarily because that's not real. But, you know, bad things will happen to you if you associate yourself with bad people or with, um, you know, the occult or witchcraft or anything like a lot of these are very much centered around that. Interesting take. I guess we'll see in the final episode of Meet the Monsters. Am I right? We will see in the final episode of Meet the Monsters how this all comes together. I, I do believe we're doing a bit more of a time jump, more to the end of uh, this run of films. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. I hope you guys are looking forward to it. Um, and I think that's going to do it for this week on For Your Inflammation. Uh, make sure to go check out our Facebook page um, for memes, cocktail recipes, and uh, updates on future episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter at inflammation for you. Um, I'm Zach. And I'm John. All right. Go watch a movie, guys.